1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash Canada land to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash Canada land. This episode of Canada land is brought to you by the center for addiction and mental health cam there is an incredible facility right here in downtown Toronto that is helping on the front lines and is doing incredible innovative research. They are a facility that treats everybody with dignity and they need your help. May 6th to 12th is Mental Health Week. If this matters to you, help CAMH. There's no better place for your resources. Go to camh.ca canadaland Canada Land and donate now. Help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code CanadaLand at checkout to get 10% off. The Walrus was supposed to be a world class magazine, a Canadian Harper's. In fact, it was originally going to be Canadian Harper's, a collaboration with Harper's editor Lewis Lapham called Harper's North. Instead, David Berlin and Ken Alexander raised enough cash from Ken Alexander's family to publish the magazine solo, which was even more exciting. They swaggered onto the scene in 2002 with talk of doubling writers' wages in order to finally produce a Canadian magazine as good as Canadian writing. The best of which, they said at the time, gets sold to American magazines. It was a cocky and exciting debut, totally un-Canadian trash talk, a welcome threat that it was time for everyone in Canadian publishing to step up their game. And then nothing happened for like 13 years. The high wages turned out to be reserved for marquee names like Margaret Atwood. The rest of us remained locked in at a dollar a word, industry standard in Canada for the past 30, 35 years now. As for the content, well... Do you remember that Walrus article that everybody was talking about? Me neither. After an uneventful victory lap tenure by former Toronto Life editor John McFarlane, the Walrus editorship has recently been handed over to Jonathan Kaye, who at the time was comment editor at the National Post. You'll remember him from a previous interview on Canada Land. I recently interviewed John again, this time about his new job in his new office, conducted under an enormous framed portrait of a fat hairy Walrus. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Casey Torangeau, Nathan Curry, Kate Mulvale, Dan, Cara, Matt Schnur, Cameron, Stephen Beam, Christopher Zabina, Lauren Crawford, and Squarespace. Listen, I believe in digital literacy and computer literacy. I believe that everybody should know a little bit about computer code, about how code works. But I don't think that everybody should have to know how to code in order to make a website. And I remember making websites in like 1996, 97. And even then, I was trying to use visual interfaces like Dreamweaver, and you couldn't. It just, it would fall apart. It wouldn't work properly. And you had to get into the code. That was a really good educational experience for me. But I don't think, I I just don't think that you need to know how to build a car or repair a car in order to drive a car. But at a certain point, in order for this to scale, in order for everybody to be able to drive a car, it should sort of be a turnkey kind of an operation. So I'm very supportive of the idea that everybody can have a voice, can have a platform that looks as good as anybody else's. Like, I don't think that production values should determine who we listen to. And with that in mind, I'm really excited that Squarespace sponsors this show because they let you make simple and powerful and beautiful websites that work on any device, tablet, phone, regardless of whether or not you know how to code. It is so easy to make a site With Squarespace, that looks as good as the slickest sites out there. They have 24 7 support via live chat and email, and it's affordable. It's eight bucks a month, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year, which again, having your own domain is something that separates the pros from the amateurs, and I want to abolish that differentiation. I mean, why don't we let the content determine if a website is worth your time or not? And they've also made it super simple and easy to just sort of get going because when you go to squarespace.com, you start a trial and you don't have to give them your credit card. You just start building your website. You see if you like what they have. And when and if you decide to sign up, make sure you use the offer code CanadaLend and you'll get 10% off your first purchase and you'll be showing your support for this show. Squarespace. with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash to claim this offer. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We got a tour of their facilities in their downtown Toronto campus, and I was blown away by the heroic work that these people are doing. They are saving lives every day. I know people whose lives were saved, and they just really care about the dignity of the people who turn to them for help. Look, we talk a lot about these issues on Canada. We talk about the crisis that is claiming 20 lives every day in Canada to drug overdoses. But we don't give you a lot of options of what you can do about it. CAMH is an option. CAMH desperately needs resources that they directly put into their work, saving lives and turning people's lives around. Listen, May 6th to 12th is Mental Health Week. This is when they need your help the most. Go to camh.ca slash Canada land to help Cam H treat addiction and build hope. Okay. So when David Berlin started the magazine, uh, it was asked why is it called the walrus? He said, because nobody ignores a walrus. Mm.
2: Everyone has ignored the walrus. Uh, look, it's, uh, it's, it's, that's half right. Uh, if you look at sort of who wins the national magazine awards, Um, and, and what sort of magazines, you know, Margaret Atwood praises and, and which are read in, uh, living rooms, uh, in, you know, very well-educated communities in Canada. I mean, the walrus has a very prominent place in elite intellectual journalism in Canada, but it is true that we can do a better job, uh, getting it more widely read in, in mainstream Canadian circles. We can do a better job promoting our journalism, uh, among the broad public, um, so I think it's true that too many people have ignored the walrus, and that's one of my jobs is to fix that.
0: I think you're sort of setting it up as if like there's sort of like the literary elite, and then there's you know like, let's popularize this. I'm sort of saying something different, and I and I have a lot of respect for m-
2: tons of like this is you know over a decade. How many years now is this? Uh, we had our tenth anniversary issue a little while ago, so yeah, we're 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 st- Starting up our second decade.
0: Right. So uh, there's been a lot of wonderful, incredibly smart people writing important things that a lot of work went into. I have had a piece in The Walrus. Awards juries have paid a lot of attention to The Walrus. I'm not saying that that it needs to be more popularized or, 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 um, you know, dumbed down. I'm saying it's been boring. I I, I think that our conversation will go better if we could. Can we agree that The Walrus has been, the problem has been that it's been boring?
2: Some of the articles The Walrus has published uh, have not caught my interest. That's true. What, what can be done? Uh, well, I think there are a few things that can be done. Um, I mean, one thing, I come to this magazine with a little bit more of a digital media sensibility. Uh, I spent my last 16 years at the National Post, and for the second half of that, I was very much involved on the full comment blog at the National Post, which is the blog of the comment section. And as the years go by, you start to pay a lot of attention to the hit counter and what kind of articles people are interested in reading uh, and what sort of article lengths people are interested in reading. And by no means am I suggesting that uh, a newspaper editor or a magazine editor should be guided solely by the hit counter um, on on a website, but you need to pay attention to what people want to read. You need to pay attention to the kind of issues people want to read about. Uh, There are hundreds of issues out there and a magazine, you know, the National Post, it was, you know, uh, the comment section of a broadsheet broad newspaper, so we were looking for intellectually upscale stuff. You've got to know what people are interested in, and sometimes it's counterintuitive. I think the walrus, up to this date, like a lot of very upscale publications, has had a mentality, a certain sort of wood-paneled conference room mentality that says, um, these are the issues that Canadians really should be interested in, so let's push articles on these issues. And there has to be some of that. You know, uh, you know, the Globe and Mail pushed the th- th- thalidomide issue, the th- thalidomide survivor issue, and, you know, they were interested in it, and they made Canada interested in it. I think that's a great thing. Um, so I think there is room for that, but you also have to listen to people. And s- sometimes the best way to listen to what your readers want to read about is by... Putting ideas out there on the website, uh, writing articles for the web, see what draws people, and see what see what kind of national conversation Canadians want to have, and then in the print publication where you have less space, maybe you're guided a little bit more by some of the articles and ideas and debates and substance that you're developing on a day-to-day basis on the website. So that's that was a little bit my strategy at the National Post. That's a little bit going to be my strategy here at the Walrus.
0: I think when you look at the model that the Walrus was sort of uh, crafted within, it's not about chasing the topic that everybody is already talking about or wants most to be talking about, but about making important topics incredibly readable. And there are, you know, 10,000-word articles in The New Yorker that you can't put down, and whether it's Harper's or the Atlantic Monthly, uh, they... they it's 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 not so much. I mean, I, I see the balance you're trying to reach. It's not about chasing clicks as much as you do want to be responsive to what people are interested in. I think it's a tonal thing, right? Like it's not about shifting what the Walrus covers, but perhaps the voice with which it covers it.
2: Yeah, um, I think the tone of some of the writing is going to shift a little bit. You know, I think in the '80s and '90s, uh, you know, there is there is an old school magazine voice that comes through in a lot of articles. You, you know, you saw it in The New Yorker. You, you saw it uh, in Atlantic magazine until fairly recently. Um, you used to see it in McLean's before Ken White uh, took that magazine over. Um, I guess that's going back a decade or so. And, and The Walrus is very much in, in that tradition. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a highly respectable publication that always strove for a tone that was consistent with its mandate. Uh, you know, educational, national importance rigorously fact-checked, and that's something that will not change. And that tone, I think, was highly suitable for the age in which the walrus was conceived. We're now in a different age. You know, people are used to Twitter. I mean, even highly intelligent, well-read, educated people, uh, they're on Twitter. They're on Facebook. Um, They expect a certain level of satirical self-awareness in what they read. Uh, They maybe don't like the heavily earnest tone that a lot of Canadian magazine writing has had over the years. Uh, So, yeah, it will require a shift in tone to really conform to what intelligent readers expect in the age of Twitter. They don't want their essay-length journalism, 140 characters, but they do want their essay-length journalism uh, and their long-form journalism and long-form reportage to be informed by um, the the self-awareness, the humor, the sophisticated tone that you do see in the best digital media. Am I hearing that we're going to have a snarky, satirical walrus? It's almost impossible to imagine. I think it's impossible to have any publication that is widely read in 2015 that doesn't have a slight bit of sardonic character to it. Because let's—I mean—that's the media environment we, we live in. Yeah. Uh, you know, you watch—you know—presidential debates. You know, you listen to the State of the Union here in Canada. Question period. I mean, you know. People discuss serious, serious issues these days, just assuming that the commentary that's going to that's be about it is going to have a sardonic tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and even serious commentary, like the kind that you're going to see in The Walrus, you have to be, you have to be cognizant of that. It can't, it can't dominate your message, but it's 2015 you have to reflect that.
0: I have a theory as to why The Walrus has been so boring, okay. despite the involvement of so many interesting people with interesting ideas. I'm going to run it by you and you tell me what you think. Okay. Because, you know, I pick it up. I was so excited when the Walrus launched and the things they were saying that we need a serious magazine and, and that it was, you know, crafted in the, you know, in consultation with Lewis Lapham and the, and the tradition of Harper's. Like, yes, yes, everyone was cheering. And then it made noise about the paying writers properly. And, yes, everyone was cheering. And then every issue is like, this is just I, I, I can't get through an article. So after the hundredth time that I was sort of pulling my hair out, it, it dawned on me, this magazine is not in the business of being interesting. Every other magazine, you sit down to write something, you sit down to publish something, it's like, will people want to read this? Is this this gripping? The Walrus is is, is set up as a charity now, and it relies very heavily on charitable donations from corporations. Sometimes the same companies are placing ads. We see Enbridge and CAP and other institutions. They're not trying to buy as many eyeballs as they can when they give money to the Walrus or when they buy an ad in the Walrus. What they're trying to do is elevate their brand with the walrus's brand, which is a brand of, as, as you said, it's, it's respectable. I don't know that good journalism and interesting journalism is so concerned with being respectable, uh, you know, I, but, but that is the walrus's brand is about literary intellectual prestige more than a gripping story. And there is no gripping story that doesn't bother someone and often somebody powerful or some institution that's powerful. So maybe you're not in the interesting article business, actually.
2: Uh, we have to be in the interesting article business because if the articles aren 't interesting, then eventually all that prestige you 're talking about is going to evaporate uh, it doesn 't matter how good a brand is uh, if people aren 't if our website isn 't relevant uh, if people aren 't downloading our app uh, if people aren 't buying the magazine and talking about it through word of mouth uh, eventually that that prestige it might take a year it might take five years it might take ten years eventually that 's going to dissipate so it has to be something that people want to read. It is true that we don't have a huge focus like the Toronto Star does, for instance, on say investigative journalism. We don't have the resources for that, but we certainly do plan to run articles, uh, especially on the web, that do provoke and that you know that, that run contrarian positions, uh, depending on what your starting point is, uh, in the way that you just described. Uh, if you don't do that, you're not going to be relevant. And by the way, the trans—you know—this isn't the first time I've seen this transformation in the media. You know, I, I started the National Post editorial board in the 1990s. And that was still a day when people read and wrote editorials with a sense of like, well, okay, this isn't going to be particularly interesting or entertaining. It's an editorial in a broadsheet newspaper. But, you know, I'm going to read it because, well, in the same way I eat my peas because this is something I should read. And that's changed. I mean, I saw that change before my eyes. And even editorials, even serious op-eds, people began to develop an expectation that they were going to be entertained and interested even when they were being educated. So, you know, it's, you, you saw sort of folks like maybe George Will and Jeffrey Simpson, sort of, you know, the old school of op-ed contributors. You know, they started to be kind of overshadowed by guys like, um, I don't know, Mark Stein and Charles Krauthammer, Krugman on the New York Times op-ed page, who had a more spirited style.
0: Entertainers over standard bearers, I suppose.
2: I wouldn't call Krugman or, uh, or Krauthammer an entertainer, but they certainly are folks who bring a more dynamic verbal style to their columns. Uh, and strive, you know, to create one-liners that, you know, are going to be tweeted out. And I saw this transformation take place. Now, this transformation still has a ways to go. You know, sometimes you read the Globe and Mail op-ed page, and you, you, sometimes, you know, it's, it's still very much in that respectable sort of wood-paneled mold. Sometimes. Sometimes. This is the transformation that it's my responsibility to continue here in the world of magazine.
0: Talking about... I, I are those your marching orders? I mean, is that what you were hired to do? Uh, is is it just your no. personal predilection as a former newspaper editor that you want to you'd rather edit a really interesting crackling magazine than a boring one, or is that like, are you going to be judged by
2: those terms? I'm going to be judged by how um, how much I maintain and improve the degree to which the walrus is is relevant in the way people talk about Canada. Um, and that, you know, you, you talked 10 minutes ago about how, you know, you found it kind of boring. I need for people to talk about Walrus contributors and Walrus articles and the Walrus website when they talk about important issues facing Canada. You know, right now, if you're someone who's, who's engaged in, in a policy debate in Canada, um, you know, you really care about this country. When you boot up your computer, your daily fare might be you might go to iPolitics, you might go to, uh, you know, Globe and Mail, National Post, Toronto Star, um, uh, CBC. I I want the walrus to be in that set of sites that people visit. They say I want to see what these guys are talking about. So that's that. In a nutshell, is what I want to do.
0: You said in a previous interview that you know we were asked what kind of writers are you going to be publishing, and you said that you know while you would like to retain the magazine's writers from the annex, you would also like to use writers who you've respected at the, at the National Post, and you, and you cited Conrad Black. Can you appreciate why that would make younger writers in Canada throw up in their mouths a little bit?
2: Well, look, there's a lot of great young writers who, you know, I... Who, who don't live I, in the annex or the bridal path. Yeah, I mean, I you know, one guy was uh, you know, was, just throw out a name, you know, Colby Kosh. I mean, well, I'd say he's young. He's, he's probably closer to my age. But, uh, you know, he's a guy who who lives in Alberta and, you know, Canada doesn't see enough of Colby Kosh. He used to work with me at the Post and he went to McLean's and, you know, he's the kind of guy who, who writes brilliant stuff. Rex Murphy, who, I you know, I know you've... on. Canada, land, you've you've done a lot of stuff about Rex, um, and the speeches he's given in regard to the oil industry and stuff like that. No one in this country writes about Newfoundland better than Rex Murphy. You know, I'd love to get him in this magazine, not writing about the oil industry or any of the, the stuff you've talked about. I'd like to get him into the magazine writing about Newfoundland. Uh, there are writers in Montreal. Uh, I'd love to get writing about Quebec. I, w- I mean, I, I want to talk about this in a way that isn't a, a, about a personal attack because I don't really have
0: any, and I and I I'm looking at this through a wider lens, okay? And I see that the Walrus board that hired you, uh, Heather Conway, is she still on the board of directors of the Walrus? Uh,
2: you know, in terms of the foundation on the board, there's I spend so little of my time with that that I'm probably going to be fairly ignorant of your most... I don't want to start answering questions about the board and its operations because I've been here six weeks and, uh, you know, I've never attended a board meeting.
0: I'm not going to ask you to answer questions like you're responsible for this. Um, and I think that, you know, you, like me, are, are just a, a guy who happens to be like a white guy, I mean, I'm a privileged white guy, maybe you are too, uh, trying to do interesting work when you get the opportunity to do so. So, And, you know, irrespective of, no, no attack on you personally, I know yeah. you're a well-liked, and yeah. respected guy. I see you in this job. Heather Conway was one of the people who had power of putting you in this job. You were on the Q Media panel. Um, you know, so is John Krukshank of the Toronto Star. You see that, you, you talk about bringing Conrad Black from the Postal Walls. There's this insane cross-pollination where it's like the only options on the menu are, well, I could go with the Boomers in the annex or the billionaire on the bridal path. And meanwhile, you look at the Walrus as a place that had this promise of being a new magazine that was going to pay decent money. And the Ministry of Labor uh, concluded that you were illegally exploiting 12 interns. 12 interns in this in this small company. So you look, you look at this from the perspective of, say, like, uh, a 22-year-old Arab-Canadian woman trying to get a start in journalism, and you look at these networks, and, and a lot of it does have to do with, you know, you've got CAP sponsoring National Post and the Walrus and the Enbridge ads, and you see this, and you see the neighborhood specifically, and there's it's not just about gender, and it's not just about race. It's about class as much as anything else. Can you, like reflect a bit on what that might be like and why it might seem like an impenetrable club as opposed to a dynamic industry.
2: The world of journalism, uh, I would say, probably has resisted the forces of diversity in Canada more than other institutions. And I think one of the reasons that's true is that very few people can afford to go into journalism these days if they're not from a privileged background, which is to say that most of the Twenty-two year olds who email me and say, "Hey, I'm trying to get into journalism. You know, especially opinion journalism, commentary. I want to review books, review films, you know, all that kind of stuff that I dreamed about doing 20 years ago." And then I go meet them for coffee, and and these are people who like some just totally blind cold cold calls. Usually, there are people who grew up in privileged households where their parents said, "You know what? We're going to pay for college. Do whatever you want to do in life. Be an actor. Be a writer." you know, be creative, you know, fulfill all that potential that you have. And so often, you know, they're, they come from, uh, you know, WASPy homes or Jewish homes. Often they're from Vancouver, Toronto, or Montreal. And then, you know, they do journalism for four or five years, and, you know, then they go to law school. You know, that is a very typical pattern. Or they stay in journalism because they found a good job, and, you know, they marry someone who's making $300,000 a year. You know, that is how a lot of elite journalists are created in this country. And it's gotten worse in a sense. Uh, Even as Canada has become more diverse and more tolerant, because the journalistic industry has contracted to a certain extent, especially at the elite level, the salaries have gone down. So instead of people going into entry-level journalism jobs that paid 50 or 60, they're going to entry-level journalism jobs that pay, say, 20 or 30. And if you are a person who grew up in a lower middle class home… Entry level also being zero in many cases. In many cases, zero. Uh, and if you 're someone who grew up let 's say you're and, and these are all smart people because you have to be smart to to do what you 're doing um, to do what the people in this office are doing. If you are a smart person and you come from a lower middle class uh, background or you're from an immigrant family, chances are you and your parents are not going to say, "You know what we really want you to pursue this internship possibility at the Vancouver Sun or at the walrus or whatever they 're going to say, "Hey, look, you know um, maybe a career that." where you could look forward to making eighty or $90,000 when you're 30 years old is a better option. So the sort of people who are contributors to magazines and op-ed pages of newspapers now, a lot of them, it's like 25-year-old smart kids on their way to law school, or it's folks like my mother, who is sort of, you know, in her 60s, or, you know, I'm not going to disclose her age, but, you know, she's a little older, and she doesn't have to worry as much about money, because she's an educated person who's retired. And, Instead, the people who are in the middle, the 30- and 40-year-olds, there's a squeeze there because if they feel they're not going to be able to make a good living in our profession, uh, I mean, you know, as well as I do, it can be tough, um, they're going to go to med school or they're going to start a business or they're going to go to Bay Street um, or, you know, they're going to find a more reliable way of getting a good income.
0: Uh, But with all respect to, like, you know, dilettantish young people bound for law school or retirees who might have valid things to say, as somebody who has authority over – and maybe even responsibility, you know, as, as people who are senior in a profession do for, you know, re-energizing it. Like, we don't want just those voices, right? right? And And, you know, it's interesting when you say who's smart. The kind of young person you describe whose parents paid their way through school, people like me – they spent their youth immersed in the same culture, the same culture of, of literature and letters, perhaps, as, you know, you and I. So they're going to seem smart because they speak your language. If somebody has a desire – I mean, you know, journalism used to be, you know, disreputable, and you found lots of people from – you know, scrabble backgrounds, because it, it's, it's, a, it's a fun and, and dynamic thing to do. Do you feel any pressure to kind of bridge that divide a little bit? And, and uh, somebody who's going to be a little bit more meek at that first coffee, because they're culturally, you know, a fish out of water, and, and not not to ingrain them into your role, but because ultimately, you want to know what they have to say?
2: I'll say two things about that. In a way, it's become easier to find people who, you know, as you describe them, maybe are meek, or they're not in that milieu, because of social media and because of blogs. So, if someone isn't well-connected but he's running a great blog out of his basement or she's running a great blog out of her, out of her basement, I can go to them because I say, look, you, know, you and I may not you know, go to the health, same health club or graduate from the same high school, but I know you're a good writer because I've been following your tweets and I follow your blogs. So in that way, it's actually to a certain extent the value of networking has been reduced to a certain extent because social media allows people to self-publish and get noticed even if they don't have the social contacts. But the, big, the larger problem – you know, when people talk about diversity and getting new voices in, I've always – the biggest problem isn't race. The biggest problem is social class because people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds often don't have the encouragement to write. They don't have the encouragement to express themselves. I remember George Orwell, uh, many decades ago, obviously, he he wrote a great essay about this, because when he was very much a socialist, when he was very much in the labor movement, uh, at the time he may have even been a a self-identified Marxist, you know, he was very much of the mind, like, we we have to get essays, we have to get books, we have to get the viewpoint of the working class, of the working class man. Uh, And there was actually great pressure among Marxists in, in the 30s to get, you know, in publications to get, you know, Factory laborers to write to write things and but there Thinking was a Barton Fink now. <laughs> there was a great disappointment though because what they found was that people who had this background weren't particularly interested in writing, uh, and when they did write, they didn't have the way of expressing themselves that organized their thoughts in a way that lent themselves to the kind you know to peer-reviewed publications or or even to newspapers because that wasn't their training, it wasn't their inclination, it's not even what they wanted to do. So what was happening was that upper-class people were trying to pressure lower-class people to express themselves in the forms that educated upper-class people think that intelligent people should express themselves. Uh, And it just creates sort of disappointment and awkwardness, as it still does when people try to do that. You know, every every newspaper that tries to start a community editorial board, and they go out and solicit uh, op-eds or commentaries from people who... You know, maybe are poorly educated and don't have experience in the journalistic field. The experiment usually ends up badly.
0: Well, it's like a cultural colonial kind of thing, where you're saying we, we are now going to bequeath the stage to you if you can speak in our language. I mean, the the problem one might argue is that it's still we are are handing a microphone or a space in this magazine to you, and and the solution might be that the we should be different.
2: Every cultural form of expression, you know, has its own um, expectations and standards and and magazines and newspapers, uh, TV, radio, it's no different. Um, And it's high-minded experiments aimed at at bringing people who don't have those skills in communicating those forms into the fold um, usually end up looking like ham-fisted experiments in affirmative action.
0: At the same time, I mean, there's a problem with this conversation, which is that if you wanted to go out and seek people of diverse backgrounds who can write a killer essay, there's no shortage in this country. Like, they
2: exist. You you, you know, I'll be honest with you. It doesn't – let's put skin color and background to one side. The the number of people who can write a really good 3,000-word essay that's suitable for publication um, in this country uh, or any country is shockingly small. Even, you know, you can go to university professors or, or, or people who are, who are highly educated. I mean, people who are good writers are really few and far between. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something I learned. You know, when I went to the National Post and they made me comment section editor, I just assumed there'd be hundreds of thousands of people out there who were who great writers. Um, but look at the explosion of blogs that took place in the late '90s and, and the years after that. Uh, you know, that, remember there was this great fashion that we were—you know—everyone was going to be a blogger. We were all going to be content producers. And guess what? It turned out 99% of people can't write. I mean, look—I I actually edit, briefly edited the letters section of, of the National Post newspaper. And these are people who, you know, put pen to paper, as it were, and they say, "Oh, you know, I've got something to say. I'm going to write a letter to the National Post." And and most of those were just. Incoherent, or you know, contain profanity or hate speech, and just nonsense. Um, you know, maybe you and I have been in the field for a while, so we just sort of take it for granted that that most people can write. But in the same way that I don't have the skills that 99% of the people out there have, you know, to to teach or to. To, to be a plumber and electrician most people can't write so it's very difficult to get new writers into any publication you really yeah. have to work
0: at it I, it's changing I've, I, I read evocative incredibly funny interesting stuff all the time that's comprised of well send it to me uh, <laughs> but they're not they're not 3,000 word essays they're um, comment threads on Facebook they're, they're you know Instagram accounts
2: people are communicating in new ways but you know this is but that's another problem There's the attention deficit thing because to write a sustained narrative uh, whether it's fiction or non-fiction I mean it, you know, it might take you a week. Um, but people today, and sometimes that includes me, by the way, on the weekend when I'm on my smartphone, uh, they have about 30 seconds, uh, you know, window of opportunity to write something. So they scrawl something out on social media and that's it. Um, so it's difficult to convince a person to say, um, you know, take, take a week of your time to write something. Yeah. Um, because that's, you know, a, a week has become a much longer time in terms of people devoting that than, than it was when I was a kid.
0: I'm not so interested in the political spectrum as a device to, to look at things through, but it, it, it does bear mentioning that the Walrus was originally going to be Harper's North, and uh, and then it evolved. But it was, you know, Lewis Lapham is a very far left leaning guy, yep. and the 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 whole literary culture in the states that are the closest relatives of the Walrus, the Atlantic Monthly, the, the New Yorker, and, and Harper's, are vehicles of of uh, arguably left political discussion. Canada is a country where the majority of people's political sensibilities lean to the left. Certainly when you talk about intellectual circles and letters and academia, there's just the walrus's bread and butter. You're talking about people whose sensibilities are on the left. You're a conservative.
2: Uh, conservative. I I call myself a lapsed conservative, Um, you know, um, because I believe in gay marriage and global warming and uh, I believe income inequality is a big problem. Um, You know, I think the Iraq war was a mistake. You know, there were there were are so many issues that I was considered, a, uh, you know, a, a dissident on on the right. On that, after a while, a couple of years ago, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. I get it's probably useless to call myself a right wing anymore. There's, there are some issues that I still have some residual conservatism, but I'd say I'm pretty centrist by Canadian standards. The Walrus does, has not read as left as those other publications that I've mentioned.
0: Like, w- like, can you explain to me the the disparity there? Like, maybe it would actually. B, I mean I don't think The Walrus is ever going to be a, a massively generally popular publication or is it trying to be. But for it to be beloved the way that Harper's is beloved by its readers, The New Yorker, it's at The Atlantic, wouldn't it want to reflect the point of view of the Canadians that, it's, that, that, would,
2: that, that still read magazines? I would dispute the idea that The New Yorker is a left-wing magazine now. I think The New Yorker is centrist by urban American standards. Um, you know It's sort of broadly pro-Obama and um, you know, it, it sort of reflects – uh, you know, with sort of the average person in Boston or Manhattan. Or, that is the left in the States. I guess it's, it's sort of – it's blue blue state centrism, which I guess you could say is leftism. Um, the walrus, I would say, is probably uh, Canadian urban centrism um, on, on, on a broad range of issues. Part of the problem – you know, you talk about Harper's. Uh, yes, it's true. Harper's was really left-wing uh, uh, when I – you know, in sort of its, I guess, heyday – Uh, when I was reading it, uh, I guess, the 90s. Like all left-wing publications that are sort of self-consciously left-wing, it sort of became a parody of itself. I mean, Lewis Lapham's front-of-book essays kind of just became this repetitive you know, series of attacks. No, I won't argue
0: with you there. Yeah. I I, I think it's when you know that it's in the tank with
2: anyone, it's... it's, it's, In the same way that the Wall Street op-ed page became a parody of itself because, uh, you know, there was nothing Obama could do uh, that that wasn't, you know, disastrous. And anyone who keeps beating the drum for one side of the political spectrum in a robotic way is always going to become self-parodic. The Walrus, I will never let that happen to the Walrus uh, as, as long as I'm in this office. So I would say... The Walrus is aspirationally Canada's New Yorkers, Canada's Atlantic. And in the same way, those magazines will surprise you. You know, they will publish things that are quoted by left and right. You know, they, they take their pages where good writers take them. Uh, that will continue to be the policy here at The Walrus. That You know, if, if good writers give me good pitches that, say, are, you know, are, are to the left or to the right of what people expect our editorial line to be, those pieces will be published on the basis of quality. And like I say, you know, I... I think if you look at the range of positions I personally have struck in my journalism, I have some credibility on this because, you know, I've – at times at the National Post, I've been the only person at that newspaper saying things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, for years and years and years, I, I was the guy on our op-ed pages saying, you know, to Terry Corcoran and Peter Foster, like, you guys are wrong on global warming. It's not just some big conspiracy that Al Gore is hatching on the world. Um, so I, I will call bullshit on the left and I'll call bullshit on the right. Um, which I think is an important quality when you're editor-in-chief.
0: I did want to ask you about, Gameshi, you know, in, in the wake of uh, when I broke the scandal with uh, with Donovan and the Star, you wrote one of the early, I guess, arguably supportive pieces or positive pieces. Your reaction to learning of these allegations was to say, well, whatever he's done, it's a hell, hell of a radio show. Yeah. Great broadcaster. Yeah. Was that the time for that, or was that a pr- like I, I don't, I don't? Think no, that writers that need to quick. be appropriate. I don't want to like. It's a good question. It was weird.
2: Yeah, uh, it was a much, <laughs> it was a much better time to write that piece than it would have been twenty four hours later because it's it's hard to remember now. But I think it was on a Sunday that Gomeshi wrote his big Facebook uh, cri de coeur, right, uh, talking about how there's this sort of witch hunt against him and you know I'm just this. Nice guy who happens to be into sort of leather and chains, and um, and it was right after that that I wrote the piece, saying, "Look, I don't know who's right here." You know, it's, it at that point. At that point, it was he said, she said, as opposed to he said, twenty women said, um, and so I basically said, "I don't know who's right here," but yeah, it was a, a hell of a rate That's exactly but who was saying otherwise. Uh, there were people uh, who were saying, "I well." A lot of people were saying otherwise because they were saying, I've always known this guy was a ball. He's a no-talent hack who sleazed his way to the top. And I said, no, no I, I, I defended it because you already saw kind of the wagon starting to circle. Uh, and, and, and I said, look, you know, let's, uh, let's be honest. The guy has been a great radio presence behind the mic. I don't know what he does when the mic's off, but, you know, his show was great. And it wasn't intended to be some kind of ep- – it was a blog post. I yeah. mean, it wasn't supposed to be an epic piece. And then what happened is – the internet being what it is, uh, a couple of days later, all these other women came out, and it was obvious that this wasn't just a case of an umbridged ex-girlfriend. I mean, there was just a lot of other accusations coming. And, and to be fair, by the way, he still hasn't had his day in court, so who knows? But two or three days later, people were then clicking on my piece, and it's decontextualized because people were then reading the piece, assuming that I had kind of written it that very day, even though it was three or four days later. Sure. and. The truth of it is, three or four days later, I would, n- <laughs> I would never have written that piece because uh, it was so tone deaf by the standards of three or four days later. Well, three or four days later, it was eight women instead of four. and you no. know. it was more – well, I read it as – at that time, it was like eight women instead of one because I wrote that piece in the first blush of – he'd written his Facebook post, which described it as him against an umbrage ex girlfriend. Right. And, and I started writing it then, and I think I might have posted it a day later or something like that, but to me – At the time I wrote it, it was a he said, she said thing. And as I say, just a few days later, it became a he said, 10 women said thing. So uh, would I have run the piece, put the piece up on the website uh, at that point? Of course not. Uh, I put the piece up when I thought the facts were genuinely in dispute. I, I, I'm
0: just trying to get my head around. You know, there was just this instant reaction where you you wrote that, and then Judy Rebick was posting stuff that suggested
2: sympathy or and support, and it seemed like there was a bit of a, a closing of ranks. Well, here, let me step back and you know, G- I, Judy is, is a friend of mine. I mean, Judy posted my piece on her Facebook page. Uh, you know, there's no there's no greater, more vociferous feminist in Canada than Judy Rebick. But she posted my piece on her Facebook page because I think there was something at the time. There was something in it she agreed with, which was. You know, Even if this guy was a creep, he ran a good radio show. And then what happened was she kind of got the same treatment I did because – well, she got it in spades because in her case, her Facebook group is largely constant <laughs> of other women who, uh, who are – also feminist. very strong and yeah. an active feminist, and they said you know judy you're nuts why are you posting this crap from john k um and so she took it off her facebook page And I, i'm not mad at judy i mean i would have done the same thing because she has you know she has her community out there and they were she she got it worse than i did because you know I, i'm just some right-wing lout at the national post they didn't care what i think but she is supposed to be a sort of sensitive feminist activist and so she took it on the chin for that look uh, i had a great time on the media panel i had like everybody else, I had no idea about all the awful things that apparently were going on behind the scenes at uh, at Q. <laughs> no
0: one is suggesting that you knew that he was doing what he was doing.
2: Well, I because the, the Friday, I did a media panel on Q on the Friday, bef- two days before his Sunday blog post. And I remember I was going up in the elevator with, with John Cruikshank and the producer said to us, he says, you know, we have bad news, uh, Jan couldn't make it in today. Uh, instead, there's, there's a substitute host. It was, it was Pia Chattopadhyay, who, by the way, did a great job. I remember John Cruikshank and I turned to each other and said, oh, isn't it terrible? Gian Gameshi is obviously still having a lot of problems dealing with his father's passing. And everybody in the elevator with us was like, mm, yeah, it's true. So it wasn't, you know, <laughs> it was 15 people in the CBC elevator, and we all kind of just assumed it was the reason he wasn't at work that day was because he was still having emotional difficulties with his father's passing. A lot of people assume that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... Um, you know, Gian did a good job hiding all this stuff until the last minute from, from his colleagues.
1: Okay,
0: last question. When I was pitching a media criticism concept around, you were one of the guys I pitched it to through uh, one of your editors. Yeah. And uh, you turned me down. Um, I think the, re- the reason I was given was uh, John says media criticism is interesting, but it's got to be done by a crotchety old guy. Um, <laughs> looking back on that decision, do you feel like you missed an opportunity given everything that's happened? Or do you feel like you dodged a bullet?
2: I mean, I I don't know what Ben Aert passed on to you. Part of the reason I I passed on the media criticism thing is Chris Selle is himself a media critic. Uh, Chris Selle is a member of the editorial board of the National Post and writes a column. He's not exclusively a media critic, but a lot of the stuff he writes, I would say, broadly falls into the category of media criticism. Uh, Robin Urbach does some media criticism. I myself do some media criticism. Kelly McParlin does some media criticism. He's always jumping all over the Toronto Star. Um so to a cer- certain extent the National Post editorial board when I was on it consisted of a half a dozen people who oh Barbara Kay, you know she was on the Emma title file you know she uh, right. <laughs> she she uh, she, uh, she had that beat covered <laughs> she had that beat covered yeah. um so uh to a certain extent the National Post editorial board was and remains strongly committed to to media criticism uh the other problem i mean this isn't the time i we, i think we both have to go but um the the larger problem is that media criticism in a small market like Canada has has all sort, as you have learned has all sorts, all sorts of complications uh because there's you know you look at a a spider web diagram of who's involved which with which media organization and with which speakers bureau and is a guest on whose show and writes for whose pages and who is married to you mm-hmm. know you know say a, a Toronto Star editor, married to a CTV broadcast personality, for perhaps instance.
0: for For, for, instance. for uh, just a, a
2: wild <laughs> yeah. hypothetical, and, and this happens. You know, I, I wish wish them all the well. I, 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 we are poor listeners. We're talking about Michael Cook and Lisa Laflamme. Okay, I don't know either of those people. All right. <laughs> but no, the point is that I mean, it's not unusual. Uh, you know, or uh, you know, David Frum and Linda Frum. You know, uh, we could go on. There's a yeah, lot. Barbara Kay and Jonathan Kay. You know, it, it happens. Like it's, it's, there. There are a lot of weird connections in the Canadian media because it's a small market. And so being a, a media critic carries all kinds of, of complications. You have had to navigate these. Uh, I'm sure you could write a whole book about having to navigate them. Uh, but it's not as simple as it is, say, in the United States to say, I'm a media critic. Uh, you know, say Jack Schaefer was at Slate mm-hmm. and just say, I'm going to take on all comers because it's more complicated than that. Um, but you're making a go of it and I salute you for it.
0: I really appreciate, as uh, in the last uh, couple times for an article and a podcast in the past, that you've always been really generous with your time and your thoughts. And uh,
2: thanks for thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me on.
0: That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. You can email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at jesse brown. The show's website is canadalandshow.com, and the crowdfunding site is at patreon.com/slash canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, support it.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen